So last week, uh, I just got back from spending a week on the East Coast. Um, my husband and I, my husband's a Dharma teacher, also Guy Armstrong. We and a number of Spirit Rock teachers uh, went to an, an international Buddhist teachers meeting that was held at a retreat center in Garrison, New York State. And it was quite interesting, actually it was fascinating to be there. There was about, I think, 230 teachers from all over the world, from all different traditions, gathered together um, at this wonderful center on the banks of the Hudson. Actually, the interesting thing about this place, it's in Garrison, a uh, little town of Garrison. You can tell by that that it has a history of uh, military associations, and right across the river is West Point. So we would look from our meditation seats and walking meditation at the fortification of West Point. So. Jack at the end suggested that some teachers, some younger teachers especially, try to make a connection to the cadets at West Point. I don't know how that went, but anyway. It's a, in and of itself though, it's a beautiful place, uh, rolling lawns and right on the banks of the river there. And just to be in a conference with this wide range of people from, as I said, all these different traditions, from the Theravada, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, from this country and a lot from Europe and Australia, um, mainly Western teachers, a few uh, Asian teachers, but mainly Western teachers, and to get a sense of the vibrancy of the Dhamma that there is in the world right now. And to see, you know, these different people speaking different languages, and many of them in their traditional colorful uh, robes of their particular uh, lineage, you know, the, the beautiful maroon and gold of the Tibetans and the ochre brown of the Theravadans and the gray and black of the Zen tradition. And I must admit, a few of us from the Vipassana tradition had uh, robe envy. You know, we just have our sort of everyday clothes and, and uh, there's something so powerful about the, the symbolism of people wearing that kind of emblem of, of robes and the ordination they have. And it can be easy, um, I know for me, I'm so involved here at Spirit Rock, even though I do teach in other places in, across the country and even in other parts of the world, so connected here to think that this is kind of Dharma central, you know, Spirit Rock and what happens here. This is what a retreat center looks like. This is what Dharma practice looks like because we just, this is what we do. And it seems, you know, so great. We think it's great. It's wonderful. So many people coming. And to have this exposure to all of these hundreds of people doing amazing things all over the world in very different ways. And so I, I um, met people who are from a Tibetan tradition and have a, a monastery in the south of France where at any one time there are hundreds of people sitting three-year retreats. And they've graduated, of course, then hundreds more people from these retreats. So all of these people doing that kind of dedicated practice. And they've ha they have a number of people that have been in <coughs> retreat for 20 or more years. Quite amazing to think of. You know, we're used to hearing about that from Tibetan practitioners in Tibet or now in Nepal and uh, India to have that kind of practice. But I hadn't heard of that many Westerners able to take, make that kind of commitment to practice. So that was fascinating to hear about and I met one young man, must have been just in his early 30s, who's already sat two three-year retreats. So anytime you think it's gonna, it's really hard to get away for a week to come to Spirit Rock, you know, just to put it in a little bit of perspective of what some people are doing. 
But of course, that's just one style of practice. There are also people from, say, the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, um, Vietnamese Buddhism, where their emphasis isn't on intensive practice, but really on mindfulness in daily life. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has those beautiful practices of gattas that you say as you wash the dishes or answer the phone or sweep the floor. So to hear, you know, the value of their practice and, and the way they were developing things at their center. And then, of course, uh, the Zen practitioners who, again, have these beautiful, very simple gray robes and, and have a real care for um, the form of the practice as being very important, the rituals and the chanting and the, the way you sit when you meditate. And I must admit, I always feel a little bit um, uh, embarrassed when we have Zen practitioners come because the Vipassana tends to be a little on the messy side. It's like whatever works, you know, whatever makes you comfortable, pile your cushions together any way you sit, as long as you get to sit, that's okay. And of course, they sit very beautifully and upright. And uh, one of the Zen teachers, as he was speaking, was talking about how much he valued this um, idea of, of form and just the everydayness of, of things that you do as part of your practice. He said, so then housekeeping is practice. You know, I can, I can just do my house, housekeeping work at home and feel that I'm still practicing this, not making a big separation between intensive practice and daily life practice. He also couldn't resist a bit of a nudge to the rest of us that we're just leaving our shoes kind of haphazardly outside the door of the meditation hall and noting that in a Zen retreat that wouldn't be happening, but it didn't change our behavior too much. There was too much tendency in the other direction. So to see this wide variety of, uh, and we'd often begin and end the sessions with different people, with people from different traditions leading um, a meditation or ending with a chanting or a dedication of merit. And again, hearing the variety of how people express their practice and their wisdom. But at the same time, it was also easy to see what was central, what united us, what we could come there to talk about a love and appreciation of the Buddha's teaching, and especially the, the, the depth of the Buddha's teaching. And I would frame that rather simply as just his teaching on suffering and the end of suffering, and the, all the different ways we find of talking about that. I always emphasize that the Buddha never talked about suffering. As central as suffering is, and the openness and the exploration of suffering, as central as that is to his teaching, he never talked about it without talking about the end of suffering and to see how that was manifesting as a teaching and practice for all these different people. And together with that, as we open to this truth of suffering, to acknowledge that this is the nature of being in a human body and, of course, not only a human body, any sentient being, any animal also will in some form or another experience suffering. As we open to that truth, what naturally happens is the expression of care, of metta and compassion, of loving-kindness and compassion. And again, could see that woven through the different expressions of the teaching. So could also see what was really central to all of us as practitioners and teachers. But I also could see how central the practice of mindfulness was. And in fact, that we did a whole session on mindfulness, uh, because it's such a core Buddhist practice and tradition, um, 
other traditions have more or less emphasis on it. Some, it's, it's just part of what they teach. For like Thich Nhat Hanh, it's very central. And of course, for us here in, at Spirit Rock and our associated centers, it's really central to what we do. What we practice, what we talk about, what we teach is mindfulness. But at this conference, it, they felt it was worthwhile to have a session on mindfulness, both Actually, they didn't so much discuss what it is, which is what I'm going to talk about, but really to talk, to talk about amongst ourselves what's happening is mindfulness becomes more commonplace. I mean, it's really interesting to see how pervasive, at least from my view, and I know I've got a fairly um, perhaps distorted view living here in the Bay Area in the center of, you know, Dharma country, as it were, uh, that mindfulness is being woven into everything. You know, it's in the, the medical system and hospitals, going into schools and into prisons, into the workplace in, in very uh, clear ways. What does that mean for us as practitioners? That mindfulness is often being taught divorced from any connection to the Buddha's teachings or to Dharma. And so this is a really interesting discussion for us to have. I mean, basically, I feel it's great that mindfulness is such a helpful tool. And for many people that uh, connect with it in these secular ways, in the school or in the workplace, often they'll hear enough to actually be drawn further towards the Buddha's teachings and to practice and understand the Dharma. And so it's a great doorway, but it is an interesting process that's happening these days in the culture that this um, spread of mindfulness and, and what, you know, what does that actually mean uh, in relationship to the teachings? Because mindfulness, as I said, is so central to our understanding of what the Buddha taught and practiced. There's actually, even though this wasn't discussed at the conferences, quite a scholastic debate going on these days about what's really central to the Buddha's teachings. What's important? What do we need to maintain? What's unique to the Buddha's teachings? And what is kind of, you could say, on the side or was around at the time he was teaching and he just co-opted and included and so it wasn't unique or um, something that he created. So there's a lot of discussion about this, sometimes heated, even in Buddhist circles, there can be very heated discussions about these things. Um, but they usually, when these scholars have these discussions, they talk about things like karma or rebirth or dependent origination, um, how the aggregates, the, the, this, these five um, strands of being that, that um, make up our experience, how they're described. He talks, these are the kinds of things that they debate about as being important or not important, that are central or not central. But I actually think what's key and what was unique and revolutionary in the Buddha's teachings was this practice of mindfulness. Again, I'm not a great scholar. I do some reading here and there, but I can't... Uh, profess to being any kind of scholar. But in my understanding of the practices that were around at the time the Buddha was alive and teaching, it was a lot about concentration. It was uh, the practice of samadhi, practice to deep states of concentration, and also the practices of ritual and mantra and um, chanting. These were the kinds, and ascetic practices. 
They're the main things that I know of that were around at the time. And this um, new concept, this new practice that he devised of turning the attention in in this very alive way to what's happening in the moment and tracking our experience with a view to seeing these key um, components of reality in a way that would wake one up, I think that is what's radical uh, in his teaching and actually what's going to have the most impact on Western culture. You know, as I said, it's being taken up in a secular way, but that's going to be the doorway for huge amounts of people to discover this path and these practices. So I really, you know, think it's um, central to what we do. But even as I say that, even as we had that discussion at that conference, and it's not the only time we've had these discussions about mindfulness, we have to stop and ask, what is it? What is mindfulness? And it can be a word, again, that's become for us perhaps fairly commonplace to be mindful of something, mindfulness training, mindfulness practice, mindfulness meditation. But different schools of Buddhism and even different people within those schools will have a different understanding of what mindfulness actually is. It's fascinating, isn't it, that such what we think is such a simple, to us, to me anyway, sort of everyday concept can have such, be, have such a source of disagreement. This word uh, mindfulness is a translation from a Pali word, the language these teachings were written down in thousands of years ago. The Pali word is sati, uh, Sanskrit smrti. And its origin, its, its kind of etymological root is to remember. So it's got something to do with memory. And that's also part of why there's um, uh, disagreements about what it means. People place more or less emphasis on this meaning of memory. But one way we can actually bring it in is, you know, one thing to be mindful, a hard thing, it's easy to be mindful. The hard thing is to remember to be mindful. That's a challenge. We all know what mindfulness is, doesn't it? It's remembering to do it, especially remembering uh, when we really need to do it. Um, That's the hard thing about mindfulness. At another retreat I was at recently, a teacher was giving a whole teaching on mindfulness and inquiring of the students, you know, and these were quite advanced students, you know, what is mindfulness? So we had a whole three-hour discussion on this theme. And this teacher gave these three examples saying, is this mindfulness? So here are the examples. One is a burglar creeping into your home while you're asleep in bed. A rock climber especially a free rock climber, you know, one that doesn't have a lot of things sticking them to the rock. And then a surgeon. So here are three people who all in their own ways, you could say, were mindful, needing to be very careful about what they were doing. With a burglar, it's, uh, you know, a very, it's an it's a, um, uh, unwholesome intention that, that they're there in the home trying to, they're stealing something, they're breaking in. The rock climber has kind of a self-interested intention, you know, preservation. The surgeon presumably has an altruistic intention. So different intentions, but they're all very aware of what's happening. Are they mindful? What do you think? 
All of them? None of them? All of them. Huh? The rock climber. Only the rock climber. <laughs> the surgeon is certainly mindful. Okay. So, you know, we have differing views about even, you know, with this. What about a very young child who's got some project like this? you know, a third grader putting together a Lego sculpture or something. Are they being mindful? Yes, you think? Okay, so obviously we have different definitions of mindfulness, because I don't agree. To, when we, you know, so again, like many words, there can be differing definitions and a very simple definition of mindfulness just to know what you're doing. But true mindfulness, if we're talking about mindfulness in a Buddhist context, it's got to include other qualities. True mindfulness, yes, you're aware of what you're doing, but it has a reflective aspect, a reflective quality to it, in that you know that you're being mindful. And not only that, not that you need to always be conscious of that in a, in a sort of clear or solid way, but that that's there, this, this referencing or this reflective nature to it. And it's also for a purpose. This is really important. True mindfulness has the intention or the purpose of leading to insight, leading to a lessening of suffering, reducing unwholesome states of mind or unskillful tendencies, <coughs> and increasing wholesome states of mind. When you read the Buddha's teachings, this is what he talked about. This is the purpose of mindfulness. So it's just helpful to have this reflection, not to deny the um, definition of mindfulness as just awareness. I think that's important and there's a real truth to that. But samasati, wise mindfulness, true or whole mindfulness, does include these other aspects. Mindfulness in its very nature, will actually lead to a decrease in unwholesome mind states and an increase in wholesome ones, just through its paying attention. Can you say that of the burglar or the rock climber? <laughs> the rock climbers have a good contingent here. True mindfulness will lead to disidentification, as in a not... Uh, not strengthening of this sense of I, me, and mine. Can you say that about the rock climber? Yeah, I, would say <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been rock climbing, so maybe I shouldn't speak. I don't know. I would say they're a little invested in hanging on to the rock <laughs> in that moment, which I totally understand. If I was there, I would be too. But it is with this purpose. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of the uh, premier uh, translators of our time, teachers of our time, who was actually at this conference, and he's come here to Spirit Rock a number of times. I hope you've gotten to, to meet with him. Said that in the proper practice of right mindfulness, mindfulness has to be integrated with sampajanya. It's another Pali word that means clear comprehension. And it is these two working together. These two work together so that right mindfulness right mindfulness can fulfill its purpose. I have another teacher that says, he has a whole book, my, one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, where he says, mindfulness alone is not enough. 
And he's pointing to this sense of mindfulness as bare attention because he says what's also needed is wisdom and context that we're mindful for a purpose. You know, the burglar is mindful so he can creep in and not make a noise and wake you up. So again, that doesn't fit my definition. We're mindful so we can come to understand what's happening, see the nature of our minds, of our bodies, be more in touch, be more present. And even that is there for a purpose. So it's got to be around this context in which we're practicing. And again, it's not like this has to be, you know, writ large every time we want to be mindful, we know what's happening and, you know, am I remembering everything? We, we do want to, you know, we're mainly just being aware of what's happening. But without this context, something gets lost in the practice. And this is what I'm, I'm wanting to point to tonight. Often in, in our teachings, we say we're mindful so we can notice what we call the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, that there isn't a solid self here at the center of things. So we're mindful so we can notice those things, and it's noticing those things that actually lead to liberation or to a lessening of suffering, to a greater degree of freedom. This is the context in which we practice. Saido Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher who really focuses on mindfulness of the mind, you know, he said, you can be aware of anything. I don't care what you pay attention to, as long as you pay attention to what's happening in the mind. He said, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. So again, this is to look at what the intention is when we practice. It's not just to be an automatum, and notice what's happening. It's with this larger view, larger understanding of what the practice is for. He says, the work of awareness is just to know. The work of the mind is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. Wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It also moves away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Mindfulness recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. That is, the kind of thoughts and speech and action that lead us into more suffering, cause harm or conflict to others. So there's this whole um, wide range of experiences that we could call mindfulness and helpful to have a sense of what, as the Buddha or Bhikkhu Bodhi would call, right mindfulness or true mindfulness. But it's not something that we can point a finger at and say, yes, this is it and that's not it. Of course, as I said, there's this spectrum of what mindfulness is. But if we want to deepen our practice to come into alignment with these teachings, It's helpful to have this kind of background or understanding. But I actually think that sometimes to understand what I'm pointing to, we have to turn not to the scholars, but to the poets. And of course, one of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver, I'm sure of many of you too. And this is a poem she wrote called Mindful that speaks to this, um, the learning that happens when we begin to pay attention Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. 
It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? There's a beautiful evocation of both her inner listening, I love this, to lose myself inside this soft world, this soft world, this inner experience that we practiced with as we began. Oh, wise scholar, oh no, oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these if we really pay attention and we're learning from what we're seeing, what we're paying attention to, then that's mindfulness, not just this bare attention. That's just a small aspect of the mindfulness. But to be present, to pay attention, we've all done it, we sat here for 40 minutes or so at the beginning, it seems like it should be relatively easy, doesn't it? To sit down and say to the mind, okay, here we are, meditation time, pay attention. You know, just stay here with the breath and the body. And of course, I'm sure you all know how difficult that is, how... Uh, it's almost impossible at times to keep the mind actually in the present moment with some degree of steadiness. What usually happens? The mind just goes off here and there, doesn't it? Past and future. Sometimes the present. It's actually an improvement. If you're commenting what's happening in the present moment, please believe me, that's an improvement. But most of the time we're wandering off regretting the past and planning the future. Sound familiar? It's what we do. We've trained for many years, all these years, to do that. And so it's this manifestation of restlessness, this inability to actually just be still, whether it's physically in the body, mentally in the mind. The mind and the body just naturally want to move to fantasy, into worry. And you can see that there's kind of this existential angst that many of us experience. Whatever is unresolved, big or small, you know, from this evening or 10 years hence, if it's there as an irritation, it's like the seed, the, the grit in the oyster shell, the mind will go to it. The mind will just go back and back again and again. I'm sure you know this experience. In meditation, we're asked to let that go, to just stay steady or still with the simplicity of experience. It's so hard to do. Pema Chodron says, all of practice is about our willingness to stay. She just means to stay, to be present, instead of going off into these diversions of mind and body. The unwillingness to stay is what causes this restlessness 
and has the mind going all over the place. If you look at this, you can see that really what's at the core of this restlessness are these three, three focuses that we have. Am I okay here and now? Was I okay? Did I do all right? What do they think of me? Will I be okay? You notice those coming up again and again and again? That if you look at your mind in all of the variations, all of the plethora of kinds of thoughts that you have, somehow or another, I think a lot of them come down to those three questions. And so for us as meditators, getting some clarity about that is really kind of a doorway into finding a different relationship to those kinds of thoughts and not being so agitated by them, not feeling this urgency, this drivenness to keep answering them, to keep going around in the washing machine. I call it the washing machine with no spin cycle. It's just you know agitating the same dirty water and dirty clothes around. Something's happening, but nothing is really shifting in that process. This is a really natural tendency that we have, this am I okay? I mean, we're here today because thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, our ancestors were the ones that when the bush kind of rattled a bit, they didn't say, hmm, I wonder what's over there. Let's go and look. They said, I'm out of here. You know, this is, this is scary. I don't like this. The anxious ones were the ones that survived. You know, they were the ones whose genes we have, the ones that weren't so worried. You know, I don't think they lasted that long in that kind of environment. So as humans, that tendency is still really deeply in us. You know, you can talk about fight or flight. Uh, I heard someone else describe it as avoid or acquire. You know, we're just in this relationship with our experience a lot of the time. You know, if you go back to our forebears, do I eat it or does it eat me? You know, this is the question that we were asking back then and some form of that exists today, this kind of judging and manipulating, this, this um, tension, this, this vigilance that we can often experience is really out of that. Uh, I did some study with a man named Peter Levine. Some of you I'm sure have heard of him. He teaches a, a trauma work called SE, Somatic Experience, and he based it on studying animals in the wild, especially prey animals in the savannas of Africa and seeing how, you know, I don't know how often in a day, I haven't been to Africa, but that they might be chased by something and go through that, you know, adrenaline rush and fear of the predator. But, you know, one unfortunately, or for the deer and fortunately for the lion, would get killed and eaten, and the rest would just go back to grazing and be seemingly unfazed by that experience. And he saw they had some process of letting go of that trauma. (laughs) Not the one that was attacked and eaten, obviously, the ones that survived. So he looked into that and, and realized that there was a physical process that could go on that could start to release that. But for many of us, we've lost that capacity. So we're always in a heightened state of anxiety. This, as I said, level of vigilance or stress kind of like, you know, luckily they gave it up. The terrorist threat level was always at orange. It's like, always orange, always orange. What do you do? It's always orange. You know, am I always worried, always vigilant? See, that doesn't help. If you're in that, that's just stress on the body. We weren't built to deal with this kind of stress. Uh, We have to have some way of releasing it. 
And so this is what meditation works with, really seeing these tendencies of mind and building this capacity, whether you call it trust or faith or acceptance, just this willingness to be present with things as they are, this deep and profound acceptance or equanimity that allows us to open to things, not pushing them away or denying them, but not building them up and making a big story about them, but seeing them just as they are. This is a huge part of right mindfulness, this skillful relationship to our mind, our body, and our experience. Accepting things, knowing things just as they are with this understanding. And so the relaxation that I was inviting you to open to at the beginning of the meditation is really so important. Many of us don't truly know how to relax, to let go of that sense of stress or vigilance, tension, anxiety, worry, fear, however it's manifesting, or the, you know, being lost in fantasy and desire, but to just be fully present with this sense of openness to the moment. So we have to work with this kind of crazy mind that runs all over the place. It really helps to start with relaxation of the body and keep coming back to that. And I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is because if the body relaxes and stills, it invites the mind to relax and still. When the mind runs all over the place, we just have to see that that's happening. Again, it's not to make thoughts bad or wrong or the the enemy. It's about discovering a skillful relationship to them. But as I said, you know, we, I, just see, I see in my own mind, if there's something I have to do, some project, something, the littlest thing, and the mind gets a hold of it, it is relentless. You know, the other day I thought of an email. I mean, I send hundreds of emails all the time, but I just thought of one I should send. I was on a doing my exercise hike. I often hike up in these hills. And as soon as I thought of this email that I had to send, not even a very important email, the mind wouldn't let go. Every few seconds, the opening lines of that email would go through my mind. And i go, all right already, I got it. I'm going to send it. It's not even that important. Is there any chance that when we meet on Thursday, you know, all right already, I got, I'm going to send it. I'll write it down. Is there any chance when we meet up? If a friend spoke to you as repetitively as your mind does, you would run a mile when you saw them coming. I mean, would you put up with someone that said the same things over and over again? Yet the mind will just do it. It'll find, as soon as the attention is not there, this, I would find this opening line of this email. It's like, I got so tired of it. And I still haven't sent it mainly out of resistance to actually typing those words that my mind kept trying to drum into me. So there's this, this tendency to restlessness and agitation. And what I've seen, because I've been really looking into this tendency to restlessness in my daily practice and on longer retreat practice, how deeply ingrained it is, just these little movements to scratch or itch or move, you know, adjust things as we're trying to sit still. And I see that there's this feedback loop. There's a restlessness that's a subtle energy. It leads to some form of agitation in the mind and some form of contraction in the body. And unless I notice that, there's just then this feedback loop 
that starts happening. And if the contraction is there, it just feeds into the restlessness. And if I start noticing the tendency to want to, you know, just adjust something, to move something, we get on that treadmill of restlessness. So it's really interesting to start pay attention, again, to that more core or central energy of the restlessness. And just see what's actually there. What's going on in that? Is it something about these three questions? Was I okay? Am I okay? Will I be okay? Can I do this? Is this all right? What do they think of me? If we can start seeing what's actually there, we can actually begin to diminish that tendency to find some sense of peace or ease or relaxation. I have a niece in Australia who has had a mild form of ADHD for some time, and it's really impacted her. It's, you know, schoolwork, etc., has been challenging. But as she's growing, she's about 16 or so now, she's really settling down and enjoying her schoolwork more. And I was just there visiting, and she was saying that, you know, she said, I can still feel that energy, but now I know what it is, and I don't have to pay so much attention to it. I don't have to act out of it. And I thought that was so wise and skillful that she could start to work with it in that way. The tendency was still there, that inability to, you know, that urge to move or to, to, to not be present. But she was able just to bring some presence to that and, and see that wasn't the overriding or most important thing in her experience. So it's a training about becoming present and actually being interested and even preferring being present to the other options that we've gotten so entranced with. Again, as well as poets who are so good, my other point of reference often for looking at the mind and working with mind states is uh, Calvin, of Calvin and Hobbes. He's always a... Good place to see what's happening. So this is Calvin, you know, Calvin the little boy, Hobbes' his imaginary tiger, and they're climbing a tree, and Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. And they climb further up. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes, who's usually the voice of wisdom, says, Of course, you're supposed to be at school. <laughs> Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. <laughs> we have to prefer this moment, whatever it is, even if it has some challenge in it, if we're really wanting to deepen and practice mindfulness. What mindfulness does is allow a choice. Mindfulness and the clarity that brings it's kind of like a wormhole almost. It opens this doorway where instead of our habitual patterns, ways of relating, we get to see that there are options far greater than we might have actually thought there were. And so it is actually possible to change these tendencies or old habits. Maharaj, who I'm sure Jack has quoted many times, an Indian saint of the last century, which sounds a long time ago, but it's actually not that long ago. But anyway, he says, of what we understand, we are the masters. Of what we don't understand, we are the slaves. So it's really just pointing to, if we bring 
bring this process, bring the process of our mind-body experience into awareness, there's just more options there. And so mindfulness practice is a lot about developing skills. It's something that we can learn to do. We can learn by actually tracking our own experience. So again, it's not, you know, someone giving us a book and we're learning what's in that book. We're learning this, this, what did Mary Oliver say, this soft body, this soft world. This is what we're learning from through our willingness to keep paying attention and noticing if we dwell on these kind of thoughts, these kind of memories, these kind of projections, this kind of mind state tends to happen. Mind states of irritation or judging or fear or contraction. If we notice and dwell on these kind of experiences of calm or ease or openness or generosity or kindness, then we'll see these kinds of mind states happening. So. It's a lot about getting curious, even asking questions. You know, what's happening now and how I'm relating to it? And once we start to get curious in this way, what, what we can open to is this amazing insight that it's not what's happening that's important, it's how we're relating to it. It's one of the key insights in meditation. We're so used to relating to our experiences, good or bad, you know, because this is happening out there, that's why I'm upset or angry or fearful or, or grud, you know, uh, generous or whatever. It's, and it, to see that it's not that. It's really much more about the inner experience. That's what we can work with. So what I'm pointing to and hoping that you can see a little is that this practice of mindfulness or vipassana is not passive. Sometimes we can hear it described as just bare awareness and, oh, this is just happening, I'm just aware of it. Mindfulness and vipassana insight practice has this movement, has this intention towards cultivating and opening to wholesome states of mind and heart and action, you know, states of, of peace and calm and equanimity and generosity and clear seeing. This is its intention. And so we start to gauge or, or track in our meditation, what, what am I developing? What's being cultivated here? And this is a helpful guide as we explore this practice. So it's not just what I call the lump on the log kind of meditation. Oh, you know, I'm just here, you know, whatever's happening is happening. But this sense that there's actually cultivation, this is what's really important. And so there's a way in which I really do see mindfulness as reprogramming. Reprogramming this somewhat crazy mind that's had a lot of conditioning put into it over all these years. I'm a bit of a computer person. I love technology and computers. And I you know, always have a computer, a laptop, and just notice that mine was starting to slow down. You know, it's getting to be three years old, which is kind of getting old by computer standards. And I remember when it was brand new and I opened like Outlook, it just went boom. And I was like, wow, this computer's so fast. This is so cool. And then over time, you know, it's like I open Outlook and it's churning away. <laughs> Part of it's my fault. I've got so many emails, but you know, everything about the computer has gotten fuller and more bloated and, and convoluted and you know, everything is, 
you know, tons of photos and music and documents and emails. It's just gotten kind of slow and clunky. So I downloaded one of those tune-up utilities. You know, they always say, do this and your computer will be like new. It'll be great. You'll everything be fast again. I was so hopeful. Well, it felt good. You know, it cleaned out all this stuff. It said, you don't need this and look at that and this is happening. And every time you turn on all these programs, all every time I turn my computer, all these programs are loading up, most of which I didn't even know what they were. You know, at some point I'd gotten them or they'd come with some something else. And it said, you can get rid of all those. And it felt so good just to say, you know, out, out. I'd love to say, you know, now my computer feels like new. It doesn't. But it does feel a little more uh, cleaner and, and uh, a little bit faster. Well, this is what we need to do with our mind. You know, I was thinking about this today for this talk and thinking, you know, my new computer was a bit like a baby being born. You know, it's got all this great hardware. It's a miracle, you know, a baby all these little sensors and the brain is so plastic and, and pliable, but not a lot of software in there, you know, it's, it's got to pick up, pick up that stuff. And so it does, you know, as he or she grows, it picks up all this programming, all of these programs, all of these conditioned responses, all of these ways of being with the world. And over time, they just get solidified and we don't question them. And again, like, like the computer, we wake up every morning and all these programs load. You know, this is what I think about this and I like and I don't like and my reactions and my story. And we don't even question that all that stuff is there. It's just so second nature. Yet when you really look and see, you know, how much of it is outdated? the old operating system. How much is programs, you know, maybe they were helpful once, but you don't need them anymore. Old reactivities, old grudges, old, old hurts and losses, but we carry them around. So mindfulness offers us this possibility of actually tracking these processes so we can see these programs when they load up. You know, that grudge from five years ago or, you know, that image that keeps coming up of what we think we should look like or whatever it might be and start to actually see that they're not so helpful. They slow us down. They actually impede our ability to be fully present because we're acting out of these old, old tendencies, old conditioning. So... Mindfulness, a bit like installing antivirus software, you know, cleaning up those things that have snuck in that are slow. Some antivirus software actually slow you down even further. I don't like some of them, but we need to do this. We need to tune up the mind and the body. See what's actually here. What is going to help us live a life that's connected, that's alive, that's actually present for what's happening? And what is outdated we can let go of that doesn't work for us anymore. So it's this process and practice. We learn and refine what works, what helps, what's skillful through this paying attention, through mindfulness, with this sense of context. It's not just bare mindfulness. It's not lonely just knowing what's happening. It's knowing what's happening with a purpose, with this intention to actually discover and develop a way of being with ourselves, with the world that has a freshness to it, that has a, 
a foundation of calmness and acceptance, of ease and, and uh, attentiveness that enables us to actually be here in a way that leads to less suffering and more happiness. This is what meditation can do. It's a wonderful path and practice. So I hope this has been helpful, this exploration of mindfulness and some of its uh, perhaps some different ways of looking at it than, than what you might have heard before. And I'm a little curious, is uh, you know something new here you've heard tonight that's helpful or some other understandings of mindfulness that you have worked with that you found helpful um, in your life, in your practice? How do you work with mindfulness? What's useful for you? How, how is it being important in your life or valuable? Yes, way at the back. Speak loudly. Mm-hmm. And I, I take that to mean uh, a, a fundamental state that is part and parcel of the event of being alive, simply there. And uh, just as when one has a fever, it lets us know that we're going to be sick, or I think it's fair to ask what the broad function of fundamental angst is. What is it shining a light on that we need to know, since it's there and we tend not to like it? Uh, is, it ja is it there just for the sake of being there? Or is it telling us something about the authentic or inauthentic life that we may in fact be living? Does that make sense? A little bit, yeah. Um, the question or the comment is about the fundamental angst that I mentioned. I think where I would perhaps differ from you a little, I think it's, it's very common, but fundamental in the sense of always there. I, I would hope that, that there is an alternative to that, that the, the, the point of the Buddha's path and practice is to find a way of being that that experience isn't there. But you're right, when it is there, it is appointed to something, and as I said, my understanding is just answering these questions. Am I okay? You know, will I survive? Will I be all right? And we need to start there to see what, 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 what is going on, but we don't end there. It's not that we say, oh yes, there's that and that's what is. The point of the mindfulness is to reveal that relationship to experience and see that it is a source of suffering that it is a source of a lot of ways of being in the world that, that are uncomfortable or difficult or challenging or stressful, and that there is an option. If we actually can see beneath those experiences and come to a way of relating to, to our bodies, to our minds, to our experience that has a degree of ease or acceptance, I, I firmly believe that that tendency can be uh, greatly reduced, if not completely uprooted. So that's my understanding. Yes? Yeah, I, I think of the mindfulness as with a heartfelt affection. Mm. It's kind of the reflection that helps me accept mm -hmm. because it keeps my heart open. Yes. And you know, I think that, that the intention, I'm curious what you 
defines wholesome, as you said, with honorable. I don't think you use the word honorable, but with sort of wise intention mm -hmm. and with wholesome intention. And to me, that feels like with a heart open. Yes. And, and I'm um, curious if that's what you meant by wholesome. Definitely part of it. His comment was... Um, for him, a big part of mind, mindfulness is having an open heart and this heartfulness. And when I use the word wholesome, was I including that? And yes, I would. But wholesome for me includes all of the positive states of mind, of joy and gratitude and connection and equanimity and peace and calm. And as you say, metta, loving kindness, this sense of connection. That's another, I didn't speak so much about that, I talked a little bit about the beginning, but it's another important quality that we can look for in determining whether what we're experiencing or practicing is mindfulness, whether it has this sense, whether you could see, you know, there's a, again, spectrum of, of a great deal of heart or just the, the barest kindness, warmth, friendliness, acceptance of experience. I think it's a whole spectrum of things, but I think that's another wise aspect of mindfulness, that it has this sense of warmth to it, this sense of openness. Um, it's definitely a, a pointer to wise mindfulness. Yes, way in the back. Yes, yes. I want to be that way. I want to get there. This is like a very fine line. I just want you to talk about this notion of intention and cultivation yeah. and how it's distinct from uh, striving and the self-criticism. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Her comment is that as soon as, you know, I've talked about mindfulness with this intention of cultivation of wholesome states and the other aspects, that it's very easy for us, as soon as we have an intention like that, to grasp hold of it, make it a goal, and then judge, you know, that we're doing it right or wrong, that we're good or bad, and, and that in and of itself becoming uh, a source of suffering and actually a limitation. Whenever we take up an intentional practice, and mindfulness is an intentional practice, we have to really distinguish between a kind of in the moment striving or wanting to get somewhere and what I would call more call an aspiration. I think I said a couple of times, it's not like we have this written big neon letters, you know, I'm being mindful in order to get to this state. It's more a context within which we practice and our mindfulness has to be aware of this tendency to judge because Again, that's not a wholesome mind state. That's one that's going to cause suffering. And it is a fine line. It, it's also part of our nature. As soon as someone says, this is what it should look like, that we grab a hold of that and, again, make ourselves bad or wrong if we, we feel we're not doing it correctly. So a really good point and one that we need to pay attention to. This practice is meant to increase our sense of well-being. If we use it to judge ourselves and we need to change something about how we're practicing or to work with that tendency to judging. I mean, I could give a whole talk about judging because it's such a strong tendency for most of us and such a source of suffering. So mindfulness has to be done, you know, with this, with this uh, sense of acceptance of what is. You know, that's a big part of the practice is whatever the intention or aspiration we have, we accept what is in this moment. 
And often, you know, it's that we're restless or irritated or angry or whatever. And it really has to start with that quite profound acceptance, willingness to be with what is. I see we've gotten to the end of the time. I actually had many more notes that I didn't speak, and I'd hope to allow longer for questions, but I think we should finish because I know some of you have children in childcare and all sorts of things to get to. But anyway, I hope this was helpful for you. I enjoyed being with you, and thank you for listening to the Dhamma tonight. And I hope that our practice and uh, our good intentions serve as a source of well-being and happiness for us and for all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Is there anything we have to say at the end? Turn right. Turn right. Turn right. I am such an advocate <laughs> for turn right. I live in Woodacre. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.